There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations with thought leaders from psychiatry and beyond, discussing topics that, whilst emanating from within the discipline, have relevance for society. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Are we living in an increasingly therapized world where the solution to every problem is therapy or counseling? Have we become a society where problem solving within the context of our personal lives requires professional assistance? Provocative questions, maybe, but the title of today's podcast, Psychotherapy, When is Enough?, actually emanates from a question posed to me by someone in therapy, not with me, I might add, and in truth, I didn't have a clear answer and responded something along the lines of, that depends. So, joining me on today's episode to discuss psychotherapy are two guests, neither of whom are strangers to the podcast, Professor Suvira Ramlal and Dori Ann Wheel. Dori is a clinical psychologist, also known as Dr. D, and one can safely say a media veteran and legend who on many an occasion has interviewed me for her various radio programs. Suvira is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of KwaZulu-Natal and the clinical head of specialized psychiatry at King Dinizulu Hospital Complex in Durban. She's the current president of the College of Psychiatrists and she co-manages the KwaZulu-Natal branch of the South African Depression and Anxiety Group. She also co-edited a book with uh, Thurisha Naidu, Talk Therapy Toolkit, a counseling and psychotherapy primer in 2016, and authored actually one of the chapters in the book titled From Psych to Soul or Psyche to Soul, Spirituality and Psychotherapy, and that actually formed the basis of one of our earliest podcasts. Very nice one, as I remember. So, Dori and Suvira, thanks for taking the time to uh, join us for this episode of Beyond Madness. And I want to kick off by saying that there is a common perception, which I think is a misperception, but may be borne out by individual experience, that only psychologists provide psychotherapy and psychiatrists simply prescribe medication, which almost seems to be the answer to the most frequently asked question that I receive. What is the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? And whilst there are specific differences, there are also similarities, one of which is that both can treat any given patient using psychotherapy. And although I'm using the term patient, I know that psychologists tend to refer to clients, which we might discuss. But before we get into that discussion, which could take us along a very different path, let's set the scene with the, the obvious question. And maybe, Severa, I'll kick off with you. What is psychotherapy? Um, thank you, Christopher. I think, you know, I have a fascination with uh, understanding the definition of words. And, you know, the root of the word psyche, psychologist, psychiatrist, really refers to the spirit and the soul. And therapy means to treat. Mm. Um, but also in terms of, you know, the literal, if you translate the meaning of psychiatrist, it's supposed to be healers of the soul. And if you compare our title to other medical specialists, um, mm. you have... A lot of them are ologists, uh, neurologists and gastroenterologists and ophthalmologists, except for the surgeons and physicians. So I really do think that we are a distinct category. We are different from other uh, specialities. And I think that also comes with a responsibility. As much as we are all wanting to find the biomedical basis to psychiatric and psychological uh, problems, yes. 
I really think that we really have to be true to our identity. And uh, really, that is an interest of mine in terms of how we define ourselves, because that really then defines how we practice. So healers of the soul is how I see our role. So I think that is a very beautiful way of thinking about what a psychiatrist is. I'm not sure to what extent that we even understand that in terms of the origins of the word or that we even teach that in terms of registrars. I don't recall anybody ever saying to me, you're a healer of the soul. I think that for me, uh, uh, you know, in terms of my journey as a psychiatrist, it had a lot to do with the books that I read and my inclination to be drawn towards those kinds of things where in some ways, and, and, and I don't want to equate the two, but I kind of often thought about the psychiatrist as a kind of a shaman who, who, who really looked deeper into the individual in, in, in front of them and understood them more, more deeply. To, to some extent, I, I've become a little bit concerned that as a biomedical discipline, we've almost become too superficial. And again, that might be a provocative statement, but I think there is something in that in terms of how we go about assessing and understanding our patients. And to some extent, the sort of diagnostic and statistical manual Number five, because kind of almost reduced us to a, 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 if we're not careful, to a tick box discipline. And that really concerns me. Dori, what are your thoughts about what is psychotherapy? Well, look, this is music to my soul, really is listening to both of you talk about it like this. Because I think that there is quite a gap, or there was, between the reality of practice and the desire to practice in this way and in recognizing the spiritual, soulful even mind, you know, mindful side, you know, and there was quite a distinction during all of those years, many, many years ago, when I was training, which was made in the way that you defined in the beginning, that the psychiatrists are primarily interested and are trained in the medical model, and that the psychologists are trained more in the psychotherapeutic model, um, and, and the overlap between the two is obviously there, and it's and it's wonderful hearing the definition of that it is intentionally there. It is definitely intentionally there. And, you know, my, my role um, was working with psychiatric registrars and helping them see the psychotherapeutic side from the point of view of, you know, not everything that counts can be counted. Yes. And not everything that can be counted counts. And um, that is not exactly so. It's talking therapy. It's engaging in a relationship when the relationship is um, central to the therapy. Yes. It's looking at where the person is at. Right. It's trying to identify patterns of behavior, maybe repetitive patterns of behavior that are not serving the person well. Yes. It's definitely to do with increasing of insight and awareness with the definite desired outcome that they can use that awareness and insight yes. in manifesting it into action differently, which is going to result in people improving their lives and leading their potential. And a lot of the different models of psychotherapy have different ways of attacking the journey, yes. but I would say that the desired outcome is to do with how your patients or clients do without you 
Mm. not how they do with you. Well, I think all of the things that you've mentioned, we're going to drill down a little bit deeper as we move into the conversation. I think what I wanted to come back to, though, was that psychiatry is supposed to be a biopsychosocial, and increasingly they're adding the fourth component, which is spiritual, to how we understand and how we approach our patients. So one of the issues uh, is, are psychiatrists trained to deliver psychotherapy? I think this has been a, a, a concern. And I think it is something, if one goes further back, a lot of the uh, influential psychiatrists in, in, in decades past were all psychoanalytic therapists, many of them actually. So in fact, there was a very rich tradition within psychiatry of psychoanalysis, which kind of got pushed to one side and eventually was almost frowned upon as we moved into this more biomedical uh, uh, milieu in terms of trying to really establish ourselves as a medical discipline, which we've always been. I don't know that we need to establish ourselves as one. I think we've always been one. So Severa, in terms of training, you're the president of the college. And I know that uh, when I was president of the college way back, we were thinking about, you know, how we um, bring in and, and make sure that psychotherapy is an active part of, 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 of training of psychiatrists. Your comments on that and in terms of what the requirements are for psychiatrists in order to qualify as psychiatrists. Thank you, Christopher. So I think before I speak about the training, I, I want to emphasize that I, I really think as a discipline, we are struggling with our identity. On the one hand, mm -hmm. there is this need to be a kind of bona fide biological um, specialist. Yes. And I, I'm not sure. And I think that comes from the history, you know, in terms of uh, mental illness has been there since, since time immemorial. And we see references to it in the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And I think because psychiatrists struggled with that integration into the medical model because we didn't have the science to back up a lot of what we were doing at, at, in the earliest uh, stages of our journey, mm. uh, they kind of shied away from the psychosocial aspects. And then you find that if you look at the curricula over time, it became increasingly biomedical. Mm. And I, for one, am very strongly uh, a strong believer in the importance of psychotherapy. And I do believe that psychotherapy is a biological therapy, right? Because there's a yes. lot of evidence for yes. that. So for those people who are feeling that we're throwing all the biology out, I think they need to do some reading around this. Uh, but in terms of the training, I was, you know, personally did receive no formal psychotherapy training uh, as a registrar. And I really lamented that because I think I was drawn to psychiatry really because of the the nature of having to to deal with people on a, on a more personal human level. Mm -hmm. And this is something I sought to try and address throughout time. And I think even before I, became, I came onto the um, college council, uh, what inspired my colleague Tarusha and I to write the book was the, the dearth of suitable texts around psychotherapy um, so that uh, registrars would be attracted to engaging in psychotherapy. And, and the initial title for our book was Demystifying Psychotherapy because right. we felt that if our registrars like us were looking at uh, Western and European books, it was a language that they really, it was just so lofty that they couldn't relate to. And we felt that we really had to make it a very bare bones, basic um, like a toolkit mm. so that people will firstly understand what psychotherapy is and then be inspired to actually learn psychotherapy and practice psychotherapy. And so I, one of the things we've tried to address in the uh, college is to try and um, kind of um, make the psychotherapy requirements more clearly defined. Uh, and that has been a bit of a challenge because 
you must understand that a lot of most of the psychiatrists I speak for KZN have not had formal training in psychotherapy. Right. And in KZN as well, we have very few psychologists in the public sector. Right. So we often need them to kind of help with the training and the supervision. So in defining the minimum requirements for national training, we had to take that into account. So we couldn't set the bar too high, but yep. nonetheless, we had to kind of have some framework so that all registrars have some minimal exposure and training, at least of the basics of psychotherapy, because I really do feel it is an essential part of our treatment armamentarium. So it's a journey in progress. Mm. One of the things I've recently established is to try and establish a, a kind of alliance with the psychotherapy special interest group from SASOP. South African are, Society of Psychiatrists. Yep. Yes. And um, so there are lots of psychologists, psychotherapists there, and we've also had uh, established a, a relationship with the DBT, CBT um, Society of Soci South Africa, right. who's currently offering a training uh, course on DBT, a, a beginner's course for psychiatrists and psychiatry registrars. Once again, to help to demystify psychotherapy and to create an appetite and interest in psychotherapy so that uh, both registrars and psychiatrists will take the initiative and the interest to develop their skills in psychotherapy so that they can practice as true psychiatrists, which would really be my dream come true. No, I think that's very important. And just to clarify, DBT is dialectical behavior therapy. We'll touch that's on right. that. CBT is cognitive behavior therapy. We'll touch on that because that really speaks to the fact that there are many schools within psychotherapy. But just speaking about your personal experience, I mean, I was fortunate enough because I was uh, in the eating disorders unit at Tara to come across Dave Norris, and he formally taught us cognitive behavior therapy. But the truth of the matter is outside of the fact that I had exposure to his teaching because I just happened to be in the eating disorders unit at the time when he was holding a course, I wouldn't have had any formal exposure to psychotherapy. It would have been something that I kind of gleaned and picked up along the way um, watching psychology interns because we used to work very closely with the psychology interns, the psychologists. And so it was kind of like by diffusion, you know, that we acquired this. So what I'm, what I, what I think is important to understand is that there's been a, a kind of a generational shift within the last 10 years where we have understood the need to actually return to some of the essence of what makes psychiatry what it should be in terms of psychotherapy. And so, it now is formally part of the training and it's an expected requirement. Dori, very different for clinical psychologists, obviously, because that is your stock in trade. Hugely different. And I can say, you know, it wasn't very much, but it was something. I used to be responsible for those years for the training of psychiatric registrars in their fourth year psychiatry course. So there was a psychotherapy per part. It was very small. And of course, I mean, it wasn't really long enough. It was just because it was sort of necessary to throw in there. And there was the distinction that you definitely talking about. Some of my own psychotherapy mentors, mentors were actually psychiatrists, but they had always sought their own training. And they had training outside of the formal training that was the time now. Psychotherapy, of course, is a stock in trade for clinical psychologists. As you've alluded to, there are different approaches to psychotherapy. Some of them, I think, are more similar than we often give credit for. And some of them have evolved because of current need, need of the time. You mentioned psychoanalytic therapy, yes. which was the 
the approach of choice for psychiatrists back in the day, mm. maybe starting from Sigmund Freud, the father of psychiatry, but he was actually a neurologist. Correct. Go back at the time, not a psychiatrist, but it was thought to get to what you need to get to. You had to lie on a couch for five days a week in an analytic environment and work with the person sitting behind you which actually wasn't in the context of the reality of the present relationship or is what we call in the transference, that you would project onto the person behind you various aspects of your relationship. Some served you well, many were unresolved, which would give the person a chance. Now we know people don't have two hours a day, every single day, to lie on a psychiatrist's couch. And I think that although I'm very, very blessed and fortunate, to have had that psychoanalytic training in my initial training, the practice of personally and the way other people in my profession practice psychotherapy is varied and different. We sometimes argue about which is the most sustainable. Are we doing it in a too much of a quick-fix psychotherapeutic way? Because there are many ways. Mm. Do we work with the past? at all? Are we interested only much more in behavioral interventions which change the... Pre all of these are characteristics of different kinds of psychotherapy. But every single clinical psychologist learns a lot about psychotherapeutic intervention with the view of assisting the patient where a relationship is definitely present. And there is... A an emphasis on talking and listening. Mm. Sometimes say if the Lord wanted us to talk more than listen, he would have given us two mouths. Right. So that is a lot of listening. And the kind of, of intentional, considered intervention that you can do to, to address what the, what, what, the, what the person believes is the issue. And I say that in a considered way because sometimes the issue that they talk about is not really the issue. There's something underlying that yes. which is informing all kinds of behavior. So, yes, they are trained in it. Absolutely. And it's a seven-year program. And, of course, one needs to be very conscious of the fact that there are different kinds of psychologists. There are clinical psychologists, counseling psychologists, educational psychologists, organizational psychologists. So a psychologist is not just a psychologist. It also depends how they are specifically trained and how they are registered with the Health Professionals Council of South Africa in terms of what they are allowed to do based on their training. But I wanted to get back to something that Suvira said, and I think it's very important. Psychotherapy is biological. And I think that that's very important because we tend to think of biological purely in terms of pharmacology, medication, or any other kind of procedure such as electroconvulsive therapy or related uh, uh, in interventions. So I think it's a very important distinction. And I think also in terms of mentioning the various types of psychologists, when we speak about psychotherapy, we're referring to the fact that it's the clinical psychologists who would render such a, 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 an intervention. So I don't want to get into the different categories and what they comprise, but I think it's important to understand when we're talking psychotherapy, we're talking clinical psychology, actually. So here's a question, because coming from the earlier statement that Dory made that some of her own supervision was from psychiatrists, but they themselves had not been formally trained within psychiatry. They'd sought their own psychotherapy training outside of their formal training. Um, a lot of the readings that I've done have been 
from psychiatrists, people like Scott Peck, um, Irving Yalom, Viktor Frankl. So, I mean, there are a lot of very prominent psychiatrists who've written very profoundly on psychotherapy. So, I think it's very important that we're not creating an either-or, psychology or psychiatry. I think that the two merge and they come together. And I think very often it's, it's, it's a question of what is your preference as a psychiatrist. But irrespective of that, you should be adequately trained and be able to, to, to render such a service. So, here's an important question for me because I think it, it comes up within the context of training. Should psychiatrists and psychologists be in their own psychotherapy? Severa and then Dori? I think that there, there is a need for psychiatrists to undergo therapy uh, at, at some level. Um, my belief is that you can only delve as deeply into the minds and hearts and souls of somebody else as you have traveled that inward journey. And I find that, especially with psychiatrists, because they have been in the undergraduate training, remember, had a biomedical model yes. under which they trained. So for them to actually make that paradigm shift and to include the psyche, the, the, the spirituality, cultural aspects, etc., I find they had very great difficulty in that because they're so used to thinking in this linear biomedical model. So I think that, that having that emotional literacy and knowing themselves um, is, is key to being a good therapist because at the heart of therapy whether you're a psychologist or psychiatrist, is a relationship. Yes. All right? And for me, I believe that the first and most important relationship that anybody has is the one they have with themselves. Mm. So if you don't know yourself, Socrates says, know thyself. Mm. If you don't know yourself, you cannot begin to understand the other. So therein lies the merit of actually going for therapy, especially uh, doctors, because they just never have had that experience of, going inward. And I find it interesting because despite the fact that you as an undergraduate trainee in, in, in medicine before you become a doctor, it, it's obviously biomedical and this kind of process is not part of your training at all. I would have thought that those who are attracted to psychiatry would be attracted to psychiatry specifically because it is something that they are interested in. So, you know, one would assume that there is an inclination towards that kind of exploration, not just in terms of the other, but in terms of the self. Dori, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you something. I think that sometimes we were a bit harsh with psychiatrists and the training because I think there was some of what you said. The people who were attracted to it were very interested in supervision, not all, but some. Yeah. They were interested in mentoring supervision. They did seem to have a different interest. There was a sense of frustration because they weren't offered it. Of course, there was a cohort that were resistant to it and said, you know, there's been such an advancement in psychotropic medication in the last five years that we've kept people out of hospital and well-functioning because of the medical intervention. But there were many who were. And I think that the relationship between supervision and mentoring and psychotherapy became very interesting from a psychological point of view, from the, the psychologist's point of view. Because every, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have an hour for an hour in my early training. Every hour psychotherapy I did, I had an hour of supervision. Mm. And that was in the United States with the most wonderful teacher who I will, who trained with Anna Freud, actually, who I will always acknowledge and revere. And that's where I had it. But through mentoring and through most particularly not so much mentoring supervision, there has to be the question of what informed you in interacting that way. 
what informed you making the decision or the interpretation that you did? Mm. What, what was the, and of course, it has to be something that comes out of you. So if you seeing just like you do with a patient, particular ways of responding or threads of patterns or similarity in the patient, you also see a way of responding of how you choose to intervene and respond, whether it's active listening or making interpretations or whatever, with the therapist and the patient. And the supervisor is picking that up. Right. Therefore, the next question has to be, let's talk about more about this. You, you know, what was the choice of intervention you had? Where does it come from? Mm. And invariably, that is going to lead to grinding down mm. into the person, yes. which can become their therapy. So, Severa, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, it's, it's very much about yeah. taking a journey inwards in order yeah. to be able to deliver a service to the other. I think yeah. that that is important where as a psychotherapist, be you a psychologist or a psychiatrist, there is always an expectation that you're pretty grounded and in touch with who you are and how you deal with things. The question is, are you always? And I suppose some people may be more so than others, um, but I think that the process of being in your own psychotherapy also teaches you about the process of psychotherapy. So I think that there is – it's it, it's – it's not just about a, a journey inwards to learn about yourself, but it's about to learn about the process, which I think is very important. You know, we use the term therapist very loosely. This is a therapist. That one's a therapist. This is a therapist. I mean, uh, obviously, you don't need to be, if you're going to use the term therapist, you don't need to be a registered health uh, care practitioner, either as a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Is there a problem with that? Severa, your thoughts? So I think it comes down to what's the meaning of a therapist. Right. Therapy is anything, any treatment that doesn't involve surgery or med or medication. Right. So technically, anything can be considered as being therapeutic. I mean, you're having a chat with your neighbor. Right. Uh, depending on what she says, the fact that she is uh, is, is happening with, in the context of a relationship um, can have therapeutic factors. And to remember that, um, you know, at the heart of therapy, psychotherapy. Is the relationship. It has yeah. been shown in, repeatedly in research that the therapeutic factor in therapy is actually the relationship and not necessarily all the bells and whistles and whatever fancy name, uh, you know, there is to the latest therapy that's available. So I think that, that, that is the, the most important thing to remember at the heart of psychotherapy and its success is a relationship because the relationship is, it's an exchange, not just of, of information, um, and expertise. But it's really an exchange of humanity. And therein lies that therapeutic factor. Well, I think that uh, Alan Francis, he's a very prominent uh, American psychiatrist. He's the professor and chair emeritus in the Department of Psychiatry at Duke University. He is on record uh, when being interviewed, you know, saying that it, it, it's not about the specific technique. It's about the relationship. And I think that is, that is absolutely key. And I suppose in psychotherapy, one is recreating relationships that one has outside of that situation. Dori? Yes, I've, I absolutely agree that it's a, a totally at the heart of it. You know, and also I love the point you made that in having your own psychotherapy, you're also witnessing a process. You're both a participant and a witness. Yes. And so it can give you a chance when you're learning 
to say, you know, I was interested in the effect that that comment had on me mm. from my own practice point of view. You know, can we unpack why you chose that? Yes. And so you're involved in your own psychotherapy, but it definitely is the relationship and it's the how, how you listen. Are you fully present in the moment with all of your senses absolutely receptive? How does the person know that your impression as the receiver is at least equal to their expression of the sender, mm. irrespective of the um, how do they how do they experience that you've got them? How do they experience the care that is in the room and the atmosphere in the room? How does it inform that statement that always says, "I don't remember exactly what happened, but I do remember how you made me feel." Yeah, and the making you feel isn't always you don't always feel better. You do feel more, but you recognize that they're making you feel more therapeutic. So, yes, I agree. Well, you know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm getting a sense of, well, I know this clinically, but the psychotherapeutic process is intense. You have to be very present. You have to be very focused. And so it's a draining intervention in that sense emotionally for the psychotherapist be they a psychologist or a psychiatrist so Vera, do you do you think that's why a lot of psychiatrists or many psychiatrists are not that comfortable or not that interested in in psychotherapy as a primary modality of of intervention in their practice and i'm you know i've got no stats and i've got no data to support that but it's a sense that i have because certainly as a psychiatrist who works with eating disorders predominantly adolescents and various other uh, uh, illness categories my work is primarily psychotherapeutic so i'm very comfortable in that milieu and it suits me personally i i far prefer that because i can actually work much more closely with the patient and it's it's for me much more satisfying i'm not sure that the majority of my colleagues necessarily share that suvira yeah i think it differs wherever you are christopher but i i want to you know just uh, going back to our previous discussion uh, and highlight what Anthony Storr said. He was a, a psychiatrist yeah. as well, who's written extensively beautiful books. And he says, we are all fellow travelers on life's journey. And if nothing else, it exemplifies the need for us to also engage in personal growth. Mm. And I often sit across my patients or even my students and I ask, you know, who's the teacher and who's the pupil? Who's the therapist and who's the patient? Right. Because it, it's an, uh, you know, iterative process. Mm. Um, Clearly, patients evoke certain issues within you, and you have a responsibility to also explore and, and, and see where that is taking you inwardly. Mm. But coming back to your question about why is it that some are attracted uh, less to psychotherapy, I think uh, I'm not. I don't have stats either, but I think in many cases um, it's just pure rands and cents, which mm. doesn't make sense to me. But you know, you can see a lot more patients if you're not. Um, a, practicing psychotherapy and then you know it, it's a, basically a question of how much of money you want to generate mm-hmm. uh the other thing is not everybody therapeutically orientated uh, yes. some people still have that biomedical programming in within them and i must say i feel very strongly that dsm has a large role to play in extinguishing that fire that usually initially attracts registrars to come and do psychiatry. They mm. think psychiatry is about where you talk to patients and you deal with the emotions, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And they come to psychiatry and they presented with the Bible, inverted commas. Yes. Uh, it's just DSM, which really destroys 
any aspects of humanity in us because it's it it's a checklist and i have to actually spend time help, getting ready for us to unlearn that dsm mentality where it's merely checklist you know yes. i just check, tick off four to five or whatever that's my diagnosis and we have wonder drugs now also something that i'm really not uh, have mixed feelings about we have good drugs uh, low side effects and and they play a wonderful role but it's come to leave registrars and doctors with the idea that they are panaceas that mm. they are the cure that they will cure the emotions they will cure the soul um and and i think that's dsm has actually done a lot of harm so i tell my patients uh, stu- uh, students repeatedly i don't want to hear how you're going to treat the disease i want to know how you're going to treat the person that yes. has the disease yeah. and they often look at me very strangely and they don't understand what it is because i mean surely we have a wonder drug that treats psychosis anxiety uh, it's a mood stabilizer it's a hypnotic why can't i just give that and it will cure everything so yeah those are my thoughts i i think that it's it really is a question of our identity as a profession and attracting people that are really truly committed to what our uh, profession stands for well two things that that come to mind one that you said and one that dory said earlier firstly i think that we're forgetting the bio psychosocial element plus spiritual of our understanding and our approach we're kind of getting caught up in the biological which speaks to something dory said earlier when we came out with all the advances in medication and that became the thing and now we were suddenly able to medicate away what we previously were not able to do and i think we got caught up in that and listen it's got its place but again bio psychosocial dory you wanted to make a point Yeah, I do because I was so pleased um to be with that you mentioned Anthony Thor because I think um I love his teaching and the one thing that he said is if every person's a hammer if every person's a nail then we will all be hammers. Right. And so he was talking about understanding the differences which was lovely. And the other thing he writes quite a lot about writes about many things was about therapist self-disclosure. How much do you use yourself in the psychotherapy of it? And I think that what I've come to with that, I do it none for a lot of people and a fair amount for some people. And that's when I think that it's going to be therapeutically useful for them. So I just wanted to pick up on what Severa said about the fact of where is the line in a way. I mean, we know who is the patient, who is the doctor. There's an expectation that we are supposed to be relatively self-aware. We're supposed to know ourselves. We're supposed to have some knowledge. We're supposed to have some skill. And the third component, of course, is the motivation of it. That isn't exactly the same as the patient, which doesn't mean that we can't learn from them all of the time. But of course, the stuff that is triggering you or that you get, the one of the most important things in the supervision of many clinical psychology interns and clinical psychologists. is firstly you know what made them go into this sometimes it's ego they used to like the colonnettes they meaning me let me talk about myself as well in the early days you know getting that call when you're sitting in a movie to sound jumping now you the only person in the whole world who's got to run out here and help me the ego part of it seeing yourself as the healer and being the sort of only person comes into it quite a lot You know the fact that your responsibility is to sort out everything. You've got to deal with that too. Instead of helping the person stretch their own internal yardstick immensely, 
for being perhaps less central um, in a way. So there are a lot of things in the beginning that one has to deal with themselves that they have to overcome. And uh, the use of yourself, you know, when it is absolutely therapeutic for the person to share, I think is quite an important thing. So I think that you touched on something which is very important. So Vera, you might want to comment on this. And this is the issue of boundaries, because I think that this is one of the key elements that we need to be very, very, very sensitive about. And I think this issue of self-disclosure also yeah. extends into issues of intimacy and confidentiality. So, Severa, the issue of, of, of professional boundaries, because, you know, if you go to the Health Professionals Council of South Africa, a lot of the individuals who are brought up for charges of improper conduct have to do with boundary violations within the context of these kinds of relationships. So, Severa, what would your thoughts be there? I'm glad that Dory actually mentioned that because I think with the na- very nature of a ter- psychotherapeutic relationship lends itself to boundary violations because we, we actually enter a very intimate space of patients, mm-hmm. all right? And it's our professional boundaries that prevent us from revealing our intimate details with them. So when I say that who is the patient, who is the teacher, I, I mean within the within the structures of professional boundaries and not that you're going to share everything with the patient. Yes. So I do think that it, it, and that is where the training needs to come. So, you know, although we said at the heart of all of therapy is, is the relationship, what distinguishes uh, the, the professional relationship from the lady who's sitting next to you in the bus is the fact that we have undergone training and we know the, the, the rules and, uh, you know, um, and, and that's the ethical aspects of that relationship. And also that we are often dealing with people that are not whole mm. um, and they are not healthy. And different rules apply in those contexts than just having an innocuous relationship with somebody who's sitting next to you. So I think that is particularly important. And that's also perhaps a, another reason why psychiatrists and psychologists should go for therapy. Because, you know, it, 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 it sensitizes you to the professional uh, uh, context of this uh, therapeutic relationship and, and also identifies your vulnerabilities so that you go into therapy knowing exactly how far you you can go and how you know in, in, within that relationship so but very I think, important but i think there are other practical aspects for example how frequently you see the patient what is the duration of the session these are all boundary issues where you sit where they sit etc so i think that there are many aspects to ensuring that you set the scene um, in a in a in a physical way, in a practical way, in a, in a, in a logistic, professional way, absolutely in a logistical way, and then in terms of the interaction between yourself and your your patient. So, I mean, here's an obvious question: When is psychotherapy? indicated. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, this one needs counseling, that one needs therapy. The question is to to what extent that is necessarily always the case. But in terms of when does one need psychotherapy, and and, and for me, Severa, I wanted to ask you, because I my view is that every single patient who's a psychiatric patient who receives a psychiatric diagnosis, irrespective of what medication they receive, needs a form of psychotherapy. 
I don't know if you would agree with that, but I think there's an element, and it doesn't have to be the same kind of psychotherapy. There's a more supportive approach. There is something that's a little bit deeper. So I think it's about horses for courses matching, but everybody needs something, and it always concerns me that psychiatrists are, 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 are kind of one-trick ponies. They just prescribe, and then they don't get involved in anything else. So Severa, as a psychiatrist, a fellow psychiatrist, your comments on that, and then Dorian. So, so my approach is when we are dealing with uh, patients, human beings, that we're not just dealing with one body, not the physical body. So I teach that every individual has multiple bodies. And to make it simple, I just confine myself to the a physical body that doctors are used to treating. There's the mental body, which refers to what happens in the brain, the thought processes. There's the emotional body. There's the spiritual body, and you could also say there's a, a social dimension as well. So as what makes us complete human beings are all of these bodies, all mm. these dimensions of us. We're not just a motor car, as I would say. Mm. Right? So a motor car, you just fix the tires and the engine and fill in the petrol, et cetera, et cetera, and it'll just go. But we are much more than that. So if we want to heal, to make whole, um, to treat, we have to address all of these interconnected bodies. They're mm. not... Uh, watertight silos. They are all interconnected. And we know that what happens emotionally to us affects us physically. What happens to our physical bodies has an emotional impact. It affects our thinking and our thinking affects what happens in our body. So we are a very dynamic system. Mm. And so you cannot separate biological treatment from psychological treatment. So my simple explanation as to why psychotherapy is an integral part, not just of psychiatric illnesses or psychological disorders, but even in physical illnesses. Absolutely. We have seen the interconnectedness between what happens in the mind and in the emotions and how that impacts on the physical body the cause causation of uh, physical illnesses, the treatment, the cause, the prognosis. So, yeah. Okay. It's just a holistic approach. No, no, and I think that's very important. And I, again, I always emphasize the holistic approach that is what actually characterizes psychiatry as unique within the sort of umbrella of, of, of medical disciplines. Dori, your, your thoughts, because obviously, yeah. the, I mean, people make up their own minds as to what they want. We're talking about psychiatric patients. Let's take it out of the do domain of, of psychiatric patients per se. Somebody is distressed. Somebody's not happy with their lives. Um, is therapy the first port of call? Should they be consulting a psychologist first and you foremost? Know, yeah, it's really an interesting question. And I think most particularly now, yes. funnily enough, because as a result of the pandemic, one of the good things, the good result of the pandemic is that our mental health has become destigmatized. Mm. Instead of talking about it behind closed doors or behind a hand, everybody is talking about mental health now. And you're getting all of the people coming out and, you know, sharing their issues in the media and whatever and giving many people permission, which I think is absolutely 99.9% .9 of the time a good thing. Mm. It has destigmatized it. What has happened as well is that I've heard from managers in organizations and CEOs that I work in with, I say, Dory, we're throwing our hands up in horror. You know, virtually every person wants to be taken out of the company and go to a psychologist because they're mm. having mental health problems. And people are coming to us and saying, look, I need the week off. You know, one turned around with courage and said to me, you know, it's called life, actually. Yeah. Now they're calling it mental health problems. It used to be called life. So that's the issue for me because I'm, I'm a little bit concerned Obviously, what's important is that people get what they need. 
The question is, what do they need, actually? And so there's been a concern that I've had that with all of the apparent destigmatization, which is important because as psychiatry, we are obviously concerned about stigma. Um, is there too much therapy? And is the current focus on mental health necessary or excessive? So the, so I think that there's a discussion where we need to try to find the balance. But I, I, you, you raised the issue of COVID and, and Severia, you recently published an article, um, which dealt with the impact of, of, of COVID on, on, on healthcare workers and the extent to which they felt unheard, uncared for. And unsupported. And I think that uh, there was a very interesting concept which came out of that paper when I, when I read it, which was the one of psychological immunity to environmental stresses. Do you want to, do you just want to touch on that briefly and, 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 um, enlighten us? Because that's your paper. Yep. So I just want to pick up on what Dory had said. And, and yes, uh, COVID has thrown the spotlight on, on mental distress. But I think there's also a risk, as always with anything, for it to be almost commercialized. I say that in inverted commas, yes. because as I said, everybody wants to jump on the bandwagon and say they're distressed. But our emotions and emotional risks are part and parcel of who we are and of life itself. All right, So we have to separate normal human emotions, distress, etc., from uh, clinical and pathological emotional disturbance. Yes. So I think that's very important. And if nothing else that the COVID pandemic should leave people with is a commitment to their health in the holistic terms. I always say that we all spend a lot of time and energy feeding this physical body and bathing it and beautifying it and popping in tonics and whatever uh, for it. But we never look at the emotional and mental body. Hmm. What daily self-care, maintenance, nourishment do you afford that? So the basic daily maintenance is what we all require. And a lot of those patients who are distressed now by what happened during the pandemic require that as a basic necessity. It's like food. Mm. As we feed, as we we eat every day, but we also have to feed the psyche. We have to feed the mind and soul. So from that perspective, I think there should be an awakening in, 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 uh, in society at large that you have to pay specific and explicit attention to um, the the mental and the emotional bodies as and the spiritual bodies as well. So it's about and, uh, so it's yeah. about taking responsibility actually. Exactly. Yeah. You okay, can't. Sorry. Nobody. You know. As I said. Carry you on. know what I think has shifted with that is if you take the word responsibility, I think with more, more awareness, it's the ability to respond. Hmm. So you've increased the awareness, and do you have the ability to respond and recognize? So I think that people who want that kind of support deserve that kind of, even if you partner them, because it's so-called psychotherapy. You spoke about supportive psychotherapy. Mm. Even if you need to partner them for a short period of time. Yes. And I also want to explode another myth. You know, what you can do in that partnering is help people see their strengths. You help them get in touch with maybe technically what we might call their ego strengths, their ways of dealing with things that they have drawn up on on the past that those characteristics still might live inside them, Mm. that they've been buried for a short while, how to access it again. It might be short, but if they feel that they are not coping well and that they would require a partner, I honestly, I used to talk about duration and and extent as two answers to the questions that you've asked. How do you know? 
how long has it gone on for and how bad is it? Mm. I, I'm much more forgiving in a way now. Mm. If you feel that you need a short-term partner and the psychologist and you can help assess whether this is useful to you and that you're not creating that kind of unrealistic dependency, which yes. is another thing, that it's more than tea and sympathy. Right. So, then you can it. so I yeah. think that issue of dependency is important. And to some extent, I think you've kind of answered the question of how much is enough. And I think it's very relative in terms of what is the need, what is the requirement. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there may be uh, many people who are fundamentally whole, but who've kind of, you know, drifted off and are struggling and they just need to be put back on track and off they go. So there I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it more as uh, within the domain of supportive counseling, kind of just a corrective intervention more than a, a deeper dive from a psychotherapeutic point of view. But this issue of psychological immunity, I wanted to come back to that, Severa, because it caught my eye and I was kind of curious. Could you just elaborate briefly on, on what that is? Because in some ways that speaks to what Dory's talking about now in terms of how do we, uh, uh, Equip ourselves, and there's a lot of talk about resilience. It's a very big buzzword, but I think this issue of psychological immunity is is, is an interesting one. So, Severa, yes, I think it's you know it's it has parallels with physical uh, physiological immunity, and everybody learned about that during the pandemic because we all wanted vaccines and we wanted to take all kinds of natural supplements to help to boost our immunity, something that would essentially help us to fight. Uh, the the virus. Mm. So in the same way, you know, I, I really do believe within the human apparatus, we have all the, the resources necessary to be able to deal with, uh, you know, the basic challenges that we face in life. It's a, it's, but because we our schooling and our education has focused so much on intellectual development and not on the emotional literacy, we feel that we don't have those resources to develop that immunity to deal with basic life to uh, day to day uh, life challenges. So I think physiological, uh, psychological immunity is about improving emotional and mental literacy and teaching people those uh, very basic skills uh, in terms of how they problem solve, how they self care, how they uh, nurture themselves, how they are compassionate and kind to themselves. And Sometimes it requires them going to a therapist because, you know, we must remember that our primary uh, school for learning this emotional and mental literacy is our families. Now, that's now that's key because I was about to come to that. And to we say, know how dysfunctional society and families right. are. So it's, it's, it's understandable why many people haven't had that all important schooling. Yeah. And so therefore, the need for psychologists, counselors, therapists, because they reenact that early uh, um, relationship, which is so essential for us to develop that emotional literacy. So, um, so that's really my question: is that has the traditional model, parents, friends, kind of been replaced now with a professional service? I think that is that is that is a concern I have because at the end of the day, a lot of what you're talking about should be coming from the family, but we're seeing increasingly the breakdown of the three generation. Families, the grandparents not around, the fragmentation, um, divorce, single parent homes, isolation. And I mean, there was a, an excellent article called Deaths of Despair, um, which deals with increasing suicide and, and substance abuse in, in the United States. And it deals with all of this breakdown. And I think that so in a sense, we are becoming more vulnerable 
and we need to reclaim and rebuild our immunity. And we used to get that naturally as we used to from just exposure to dirt and things like that because we now live in a more sanitized world. The hurly-burly and the rough and tumble of families. And it wasn't always a positive outcome, but by and large, one learned a lot about how life is through one's early interactions within the family. And so I think it's that breakdown of traditional structures that I think we also need to, to, to look at. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I'm just going off on a, not on a tangent, yeah. but I'm very specific about those kinds of issues. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, Christopher, but I think also we also have a responsibility to, to emphasize as, as teachers and educators the importance of, um, Social, social connection. Right. Right. Uh, because I think that's, that's at the heart of, of mental well-being because we know what social isolation does. It yes. literally affects us on a physiological and anatomical basis in terms of our brains, both with elderly and with young children. So I think we will never have enough therapists and counselors and psychiatrists to meet the needs of communities. I feel very strongly that, yes, on the one hand, we do need to train more psychiatrists, psychologists, etc. But we also have to start building community platforms where a lot of this kind of first aid, psychological mm. first aid can be delivered in a culturally appropriate way within the hearts of communities, because the majority of populations are never going to see the light of day of any therapist's rooms. Mm. And I think I want to, ref- uh, what I'd like to refer to is the, the friendship bench model of, um, uh, what's this guy? It's a Zimbabwean, uh, it's a Zimbabwean yeah, uh, initiative. Uh, Dixon Chibanda. And I've read a lot about his and, and really wish that we could have a similar model in South Africa because it takes therapy to the heart of communities delivered by people that look like you, that speak your language, that you can relate to, and that helps you to navigate day-to-day challenges. Obviously, where there's a clinical problem, then there's a small fraction of people that can be referred for these scarce resources. Um, and even in India, I think Vikram Patel has replicated similar models where he's trained lay members of the community to deliver care and support and screening for alcohol problems and depression. So I think, in as I said, in tandem with creating more psychiatrists and psychologists, we really need to invest in the community to help to build that sense of cohesion yes. and social connection. So I think that's very important. And just to be clear, the friendship bench is an actual bench. Yes. It's yes, an it actual is. bench where yeah. you sit on the bench. Uh, the sort of practicalities of it maybe beyond this discussion. Dori, your thoughts about what Severe is saying yeah, in I terms of community? It's exceptionally important and maybe even taking a step, perhaps, perhaps it's too idealistic, taking a step backwards from it. What I see now in organizations here, instead of is there's a little bit of an awareness about trying to create an internal morale and a support system that happens in companies because of the understanding of what isolation did during the pandemic. So instead of taking all of their people and sending them out, and I'm not denigrating these huge organizations that employ lots of psychologists and people, they do very good work, but instead of sending everyone out, how do we create designated supporters mm. within the organization? Can we train them? Yes, we can. Teach listening skills and how you can be present to offer support. It's actually possible to do internal in, in organizations and in communities. And even before that, you know, it reminds me, it was that saying, which I can't remember exactly, you know, it's hard to remember when you're up to your backside in crocodiles that you were there to drain the swamp. How do we drain the swamp even as a preventative measure, not only going into the communities to highlight this, 
But how do we tell people that what success is? You look at the people who got eight, nine, dis- ten distinctions in the trick. Very often, where are they now? Mm. Are they successful in the way that they cope with life? So the other skills that you're talking about, about emotional literacy and the resilience, empathy, responsibility, integrity, fall under the whole realm of emotional intelligence for holistic health. And even when I work with CEOs, which I do a lot, they used to say this is a pure business problem. And they would realize there is no hiring, firing, merger, acquisition, takeover, retrenchment, anything that doesn't have a personal component. One said to me, um, I'm just aware that there are a few short people in my house these days. I used to call them my children. That's... <laughs> yeah, but that overlap is very, very clear. That's profound. People. But you know what? I, what I'm hearing from both of you in terms of what Severa said and then Doria, what you said is 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 this whole issue of task shifting, where we're actually moving it closer and closer to where the people are in terms yeah. of the kind of initial support and in kind of of I, I'm using the word intervention, but I'm not using it within a clinical context. I'm using it within a social context, within a yeah. societal context, because I think that is where the healing actually begins and it doesn't necessarily need to progress beyond that. There are obviously those who do need psychologists and psychiatrists, obviously, but there are many more who might not need that level of intervention if the other aspects were as they should be. So there are many things that I didn't discuss, we didn't discuss. There are other aspects that you know, listeners will probably say, why didn't you talk about this? Why didn't you talk about that? But the fact of the matter is we could have gone on, and I think it's a very important topic. So, Dorian Severa, I want to thank you for your time and sharing of your knowledge and perspectives. Psychotherapy, therapy, counseling, call it what you will, seems to come down to something quite fundamental, a relationship between a patient and a professional, a connection that goes beyond specific techniques and allows for meaningful exploration of struggles and ultimately growth. So in closing, two quotes, one from Scott Peck, the other Leo Tolstoy, from Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled, which I'm busy reading again many years after having read it the first time, the opening sentence, and it's as important, life is difficult. Moving on to Leo Tolstoy from War and Peace, if there was no suffering, man would not know his limits, not know himself. So remember, there is no health without mental health. I am Christopher Paul Sabo, and this is Beyond Madness, in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time.